the shortest podcast introduction that you've ever heard. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world right now. It is your boy, C-I-Z-Z-Y, a.k.a. Kyle Stutzer, the host of The Kyle Stutzer Show, formerly known as The Culture Talks Podcast. We are back at it again with another episode. And as I tell you guys, every single Friday, maybe you listen to it on a Saturday or Sunday, but every drop on a Friday, I say, I'm going to come back with another fire guest. I've yet to lie to you because truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. So here we are again, back at it with another amazing guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. My name is Russell Lowry, and I don't know that I stack up to the illustrious people you've had on before, but I will, I will do my best. I am the managing partner of a public affairs firm in Sacramento, Heidi Strategies. Uh, we provide a variety of different materials and content to influence the legislative process primarily in California. And I also have a printing business and a technology procurement business. Uh, So uh, three different businesses that, that wind up keeping me pretty busy. I love it. I love it. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, it was, it was about time we bring somebody on from the Sacramento area. We've had some people from, from the Bay. We've had some people from San Diego. We've had some people from LA, Orange County, but we've never had somebody on based out of Sacramento. So happy to have that here today. Um, Russell, I want to start with your origin story, like where everything started, like childhood. So where okay. did you where did you grow up? What was life like growing up when you're like, you know, zero to 10? Let's talk about childhood. Some of your some experiences that stood out to you, you know, just where you grew up, background, let the people know. I will definitely uh, share what I can. I look forward and I'm happy to tell that story. Um, But, you know, whenever you tell your story, you're also telling other people's story. Mm. And I've dealt with, um, I've dealt with my history and my trauma, uh, but I have family members that are still working through all that. And it's impossible for me to fully tell my story without, without impacting them. So um, my, my story, I'm, my, my children, I have seven children. Um, my children are the first ones born outside of the Bronx. Um, my, I have two brothers. Uh, my parents were born in the Bronx. I was born in the Bronx. Um, that's where we grew up and everybody we knew was kind of from there. Uh, White Plains Road and East 219th Street and, and the Bronx was um, it, it hasn't been gentrified today, um, and it was, uh, it, was, it was deep poverty uh, when I was there, and lots of drugs, uh, all of that going on. And so with different aunties and uncles, uh, everybody making their way with some combination of food stamps, drugs, hustle, um, and a, kind of a communal way of sharing resources, the the phrase uh, "more money than month," uh, more month than money, is real for me. <laughs> I know the the techniques and things people do uh, to make to make that work, and so that was the that was that was the environment growing up. It was a uh, it was far from healthy, and uh, and drugs and alcohol were a big big part of that. And and growing up in New York in that time, I mean New York itself, like the entire city. You know, what's that? Is that the 70s, 80s, 90s, 80s, 90s? 
that was the that was primarily the 80s that I just described. Right, um, right. A little younger than that, um, my dad was my dad was in the Air Force. He served in Vietnam uh, while he was gone. I was born in 1969, so um, while he was serving, my mom uh, we lived in the in the Bronx and and that sort of thing. Um, and he suffered he suffered in Vietnam. He came back and he was an alcoholic. So through the 70s, um, I lived a variety of different places. We moved around quite a bit due to that due to that military service, um, including Spain for three years. Oh, wow. And so that was that was sort of the 70s. And then roughly the 80s was moving around between uh, various family members as my mom and dad dealt with, you know, the the impacts of alcohol and, and sort of an abusive situation. So when you're when you're growing up, you know, um, in that type of environment, you know, a lot of people want to take purely, uh, you know, negative aspects of that environment and and talk about that. But maybe um, could you think about, you know, some ways that that experience in terms of whether it was the community aspect, whether it was the challenges, whether it was just the city environment, um, can you take some positive impacts you got from that experience that like apply to your life today absolutely i don't look back on it and and cry i look back on it and uh, i celebrate the um that i was able to survive it i look back on it and say and i help other people to see it because i do reach back out into communities that have people who the rest of society would look on and say they don't have a chance because of their circumstances and I'm able to look back on that and explain how learning to navigate on the streets in, uh, a, in a complicated environment, process information to um, say what needs to be said at the right moment uh, and take those factors into place. That's what I do as a lobbyist or as a, as a communications consultant uh, for a corporation. And I can explain to people who are coming out of that environment what you have to do when you have the power and when you don't. Um, that dynamic that's happening on the street is something that translates to uh, to a lobbying or political environment uh, or to a broader business context. Now, I don't necessarily use that phrase and terminology in the course of my day-to-day, but as I'm mentoring young people and explaining that there's a way out, there are definitely parallels. I love it. And in terms of like actionable steps for individuals who are, you know, in a situation like, you know, in a in a, an impoverished area with with the family members and a life that's struggling, like, you know, how do you look at, you know, taking the next steps? Because, you know, from some people's eyes, you know, including my own, you know, you're a successful individual. But, you know, from where you started, again, like you just mentioned, from outside perspective, people might be like, ah, they don't have a chance or they don't have much of a chance. So, so what are either some actionable steps you took when you were like 13, 14, 15, like a mindset shift that, that happened for you that helped you, you know, engage in activities and behaviors that led you to, you know, where you are today as a father of seven, as a, as a spiritual individual, as a businessman? Yeah. I'm if I don't know that we're going to have a lot of young people listening to the show, um, but, but the first thing and the most important lesson is you have to survive. 
whatever any of us have been through, wherever I meet somebody, whatever is in your past, what we know is that you survived it. What we know is because you and I are sitting here having a conversation, you were able to survive that situation. And if you can take strength from that, then you can say, if you're strong enough to survive that, how can you take that strength from where you are now and make your tomorrow better? Don't give up your strength because you had a hard past. So that means you can't succeed. Say, because I had a hard past and I survived that, I'm going to take that strength and use it to succeed. So some practical, um, specific tips that I took. Um, And it was complicated. It's a little different now. It's a much better, uh, different environment uh, globally. But part of what I took there is I felt like I had to take care of myself. I had to learn how to do that. And if that meant bagging groceries to get some change to buy food, um, to shoveling snow off people's stoop uh, in order to get some money, if I had to... Uh, go door to door and 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 sell something. I did those things, and those techniques of com- communicating, connecting, and sales have certainly served me well in business. I had put together so many different little side hustles by the time I was 13, 14. Um, I was making more then than the first year when I eventually joined the military. I made more money on those side hustles than I did in the military. One mindset shift that occurred later um, is the idea of owning a business. And when I was growing up, the what I hoped and aspired to was eventually to get a good job. Mm. Like I would get a job that would be able to pay me regularly, so I would pay the bill so I wouldn't have to worry about rent or a light bill. That was my aspiration. Um, looking back, all those business skills that I had developed and all that revenue stream that I had developed, if I had turned that into a business instead of looking for a job, I'd have been better off. Um, But I still take those skills that I learned. I would just apply them differently today. And so I would say I learned those basic um, communicating with people, meeting needs, offering a service and, 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 res- and delivering value was something that I took from, from that challenging, difficult experience and use it in my everyday today. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. So, so, you know, as we get into your teenage years, you know, you're 17, 18, were, were you, did you have any, you know, I know you're side hustling, you're hustling, you're, you're, you're making a life for yourself, but prior to the military and, you know, but also coming to the end of high school, like what were some of your interests? Were you like, okay, I'm going to go to like, what was your plan? Was it military, military college? My plan was, my plan was, was simple. If you'd asked me, I I was a teenager. You thought I knew everything. I understood the world. (laughs) And I got a job bagging groceries at a grocery store and I was making three thirty-five an hour. Wow. And, And at the time, um, at the time, there were no black managers of these grocery stores. Uh, but um, And for me, I thought I knew college costs $35,000 a year. I aspired to be an assistant manager at the grocery store and make $35,000 a day, a year. That was my aspiration. If I worked hard, I could move from, from bag boy to, to stalker to 
cashier, <laughs> cashier, and eventually I could be an assistant manager at the grocery store. And, and I had a plan to do that. Um, I worked probably 30 plus hours a week in high school. Um, I only went to high school uh, because my mom insisted that I did. Um, I didn't know. I thought I would, I didn't do homework. I studied enough to pass the test and I got C's and I thought C's was, were average. And that's, that's, uh, C's didn't get, uh, didn't get whoopings. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. I did enough to pass and get through and that was it. And then, so that was my high school, that was largely my high school experience. And, uh, and then in my family, uh, you were kind of expected. Everybody talked about you did your service in the military. And we thought we were kind of getting over because we do it during peacetime. So we just go in, get that, <laughs> get that money. And then they couldn't mess with you anymore after you did it. Again, <laughs> I don't know where this came from, but that was the, that was sort of the mindset. And, and then, so I did that and I took some tasks and I would, and I was in the military, I was in boot camp, and, uh, and then got out and I was, I had done well on the test and I had a guy just asked, pull me in and say, what are you doing in the, what are you doing in the Navy? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he said, you did really good on the test. You should go to college. And I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so he got me transferred from, he got me transferred to, uh, to Treasure Island in San Francisco. And he made sure I got enrolled in Solano Community College. Um, and, uh, and, that's how my college journey started. I, I mean, I, I had no, I had no clue. I, I you know what community college is? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't. I, if you'd asked me on the day I showed up, I was terrified. <laughs> thought I was showing up to Harvard. I had no, <laughs> I had no clue. I was in college. I did not know it was different. That, I, just telling you, I didn't have. I didn't have a whole lot of social skills. My my universe and my world was really small, and, and so when I got dropped onto this college uh, community college campus, um, I was in the front row. I was taking notes. I'm I'm studying like, and uh, it paid off. Like I didn't know I wasn't. I didn't know what I didn't know. I took it seriously, as I hope anybody that is in community college there for me um and then i transferred to uc davis i got involved in politics and and relationships and and things grew out of there i love it i love it well uc davis is definitely one of the most popular schools in california in my opinion based off of my uh yeah. five years living in la san diego okay. and santa cruz i remember every like teenager you know because i'm still young so while i was there i was between 18 and 23 so when I was there, everybody was like, I got into UC Davis. Let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know, I know um, you have to have some uh, happiness in your heart for being an alumni at UC Davis. What was that experience like, um, you know, attending UC Davis after you like got used to college and started understanding the process and you're like, okay, I've been, you know, hustling and putting in this work. You know, when did you decide to go into politics? Was that, you know, your first year in community college or that happened at UC Davis? Talk a little bit about your experience and how it developed into the career you started in? Well, um, 
I had determined that I, when I brought at community college, I was going to be, I was going to be stupid. I'd read um, growing up and, and reading books. My parents were, were sort of um, Black Panther political activists, um, a, a distrust for the government and taking care of their own community. That was sort of the mindset that I had. And I read a book, um, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. And in that book, uh, interesting book, I recommend it. But in that book, he talked about how it was possible for Black people to succeed um, in entertainment and physical activities, but people wouldn't, um, wouldn't accept a, a, an academic Black man. And so for me, fighting against the system meant that I was going to reject the physical and the artistic. And for me, that meant I'm competing on academics. I refuse to gain acceptance or give you acceptance because of any other attribute that I possess. You're going to deal with my mind. And so, um, so that, that, was, that was my attitude. Um, in my mind, it was militant, it was defiant, and you're going to deal with me for, for my mind and my academics. And so I focused on the academics. I focused on, on testing and, and, and learning and excellence in that area. And then, and then I built that out from there. So I was in this academic environment um, and debate and, and that sort of thing. And so I with some friends. I started a political club on campus. And, and we started it up, we passed out flyers, we put up postings, and, and we had it Friday night at seven o'clock, and we were sitting there by ourselves. And, and somebody had the bright idea that, that, that most college students on a Friday night at seven o'clock are not trying to come to a political meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Sounds like a smart idea. <laughs> right. So, uh, so we revamped our program and started uh, organizing around free beer and pizza and, and people showed up. <laughs> so I parlayed that. We built the largest club on campus at Toronto Community College that did the same thing at UC Davis, took over a statewide association. Um, and that was the path that led me through college club activity to um, a statewide platform, which got me involved in campaigns and started getting paid to work on campaigns and that kind of organizing. And that kind of, that paid route um, was my path into politics. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to ask you a few more specific questions around politics, especially for those like myself who aren't too uh, educated about what certain positions mean and what you exactly do. So I want to start with being a lobbyist. Um, uh, Can we kind of talk about uh, you know, types of projects you led in your past positions as a lobbyist and then like sure. what what even being a lobbyist is? Sure. So my prior to being a lobbyist for 20 years, I was a legislative staffer and moved through that rank to the highest levels um, and negotiating big, broad policy. Um, and I kind of knew the process intimately of how a bill becomes a law. I was an expert in that. I got recruited to apply to be a lobbyist by one of the largest utilities in California. Um, I applied and got that job and a significant financial pay increase um, 
but basically a lobbyist uh, takes the position of the company and explains it to the legislature on any number of pieces of legislation at its base it's educating members and organizing votes for or against different legislation um, that coincides with the interest of the people who are paying you to lobby. Okay, and I want to I want to even break it down a sure. teens bit further in terms sure. of uh, legislation. What do you mean by legislation? Legislate. Okay. <laughs> Tongue twister. Sure, um, a, a person has a an idea. A legislator has an idea about. Uh, the a way to make the world a better place. They think um, they think utility prices, utilities should should spend money doing uh, renewable energy, or replace the lines in mobile home parks, or bury the lines underground so they're not in the community. Any number of those kinds of things. Those are just ideas that members put in. Those ideas take the form of legal language and become bills, which get introduced in the legislative process. They go through committees, they end up on the floor of first the assembly and then the Senate, and those ideas get hashed out. And if the bill passes, it goes to the governor for a signature. Each one of those interactions is a time for the lobbyists to shape the conversation and organize votes for and against those bills. I love it. And, and, and to like get a little uh, detailed about the projects of like some of the things, I'm sure you've had many projects that you've worked on over the years, but to make it a little bit easier, what's a favorite project or maybe a super impactful project you feel was like the most impactful to you and things you cared about um, in regards to projects you led as a lobbyist? So it can be one or two, but just something that stood out to you over your career that was like, ah, I worked on this and this is what we did. Sure. The, the, the work as the legislative staffer was the work that had the biggest, broadest impact. So, mm-hmm. um, so for instance, I, I led a, a budget negotiation where we had a $200 billion budget and it impacted every piece of the state legislature. And ultimately, you needed two-thirds votes on both sides of the House in order to, to bring that a pass. So I got to touch every piece of the every piece of the legislative budget process and that sort of thing as a lobbyist an example would be um the shaping the how distributed energy uh happens in the state so if you think about um electric vehicles uh charging stations um solar panels on roofs or small scale solar and wind installations and how that Electricity gets generated and distributed to homes and businesses. I help put that framework in place with a lot of other people, but shaping what that legislation in California looks like. So every time the lights come on, I understand how that happened, and I had a role in why why the, it works the way it does and how much it costs. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I have a side question that just popped in my head. So Sacramento being where a lot of you know you know. That's where the, the, what's the word? That's where a lot of politics happen in California. So that's like the capital, correct? Correct. Awesome. So for somebody in California, and this is just a random question that I was thinking of, for somebody in California who's, um, you know, 
in politics, is that kind of like the end goal to end up working in Sacramento? Like say they don't want to work in DC, but like if they're living in California and they want to be involved in politics at, at the highest level in California, is the goal for people to like, you know, work their way to Sacramento? I'm just wondering, just based off your experience with the community of people who are, you know, going to school for this and, you know, trying to build their career. Um, I hope that was a direct question. But no, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, think of, there's different power centers. And so, there's local, there city, county, state, and federal, and they're really different power centers. And so, as as someone who rose to the very top in California, you could it was not possible to be any higher as a legislative staffer. The last person in the room when the deal gets cut, um, that was an awesome place to be. And uh, and you, I wouldn't have traded that to be a legislative assistant in in DC or, or LA. That's in the field that I was in, that's as high as it would get. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessary to exercise that political power that you go to the state capital. Mm. Um, cities and counties have enormous power. Um, and in often cases, pay is better for the staff people that are working in that process at those levels. So if I thought about it, um, there's only five county supervisors in L.A. County, and they have a multi-billion dollar budget and enormous power in each of those spheres, and it's only d- divided up by five people. So in, a, in California, you're splitting that power between 120 legislators, the governor, and all those administration folks, whereas in L.A. County, that you have enormous budgetary power, and it's only split up more narrowly. That's just an example of different ways where you can have an impact. So um, I would say first figure out what issue and where you want to make a difference, then figure out what the decision-making process on that issue is. Then you can take that information and decide where you want to grow your political power. I love it. I love it. And so I kind of wanted to ask, you know, being in political consulting, public relations, like uh, being a lobbyist, being a legislative staffer, you know, all of these positions and, and these functions rely heavily on communication. So, so were you always, you know, would you consider yourself always an effective communicator or did you have to learn and hone that skill? And if so, you know, how did you do that in your, you know, based on, I mean, of course, reps, but were there was there anything else that you did to really develop the skill of being an effective communicator? Uh, yeah, I definitely, I wouldn't have said I was, that's the path I was pursuing, but little, little side hustles prepared me to do that. So it's an underrated skill, but being able to look somebody in the eye um, and talk to them about how their day is going and have that informal conversation um, I learned how to do that bagging groceries. Hmm, wow. And you're, 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 you're talking to somebody. Did you find everything you need? How did it go? You're walking them out to the car, taking the groceries out to the car, and you're having these little informal conversations, doing that hundreds of times week after week all through high school is not something most teenagers get to do. Yeah. Uh, I sold vacuum cleaners door to door. If you could knock <laughs> on somebody's door and sell a vacuum cleaner, you've you got to be able to communicate some things in a hurry. Um, 
the at, at college. I helped raise money for my for my college on the phone at UC Davis, um, calling up alumni, talking to them on the phone, getting them to make a donation for the Graduate School of Management or the College of Engineering, finding out what their life was like and how how college impacted them, and I get them to give a donation to the to the university. That's some unpleasant work. That's some that's some. Uh, that's some that's some work. If I just describe those three jobs, everybody wants to negotiate the state budget and be in the room with the legislative leaders and the governor, yeah. hammering out those details. Mm-hmm. But do people want to bag groceries, sell vacuum cleaners, or work the phones to call alumni on the phone to raise money? People don't want to do that. <laughs> so, but if I didn't do that. I wouldn't have got to do this and it's all of a process. And so I never look down. I'm looking, I actually, when I'm hiring, when I'm going out, when I'm scoping talent, I just look for people that are doing what nobody else will want to do. So you work, um, you work like no one else wants to. So you get to do what no one else is able to. I love it. I love it. Now that was a powerful response, Russell. I like, (laughs) I like that. Um, so, you know, I kind of told you some of the, the, the reasons I started this podcast and, and one of them, you know, a, a great word to summarize it all is representation. So, you know, a powerful source of hope and, and belief for a lot of young people of color, brown, black, you know, yellow, <laughs> blue, yeah. um, you know, you know, a lot of that hope and belief stems from seeing other people that look like them in the industry. So, you know, for you and, and politics and for young people coming up who, you know, never considered that as an option because maybe they haven't seen as many. Now we are starting to see more. I can definitely attest to that as a 25 year old versus when I was 15 or 16. But right. do you have any advice for young people of color looking to get into politics as a career? Um, or, or, you know, it might be advice that applies to, to all races, but if you feel like it targets, you know, a, a specific demographic, awesome. But any pieces of advice that you, you know, for young people looking to get into politics as a career? Yeah, I would, I would say, I would say put the work in to know the material better than anyone else. Hmm. The work goes, the work flows to those who know. Hmm. And, and politics and public policy are hard. Um, It's boring. It's not like anybody naturally grows up just fascinated with the details of distributed generation and energy policy or obscure topics like water or or education funding formulas and the details and minutia of that work. And so as a younger person, if you're willing to learn that stuff so that you know things beyond a surface level, at a certain point, and this happened to me throughout my career, when things got hard, messy, and difficult, I had something to add then. Mm. So if I ask anybody in your audience their opinion about education, water, uh, Ukraine, what should we be doing, who should win election, most people, as you scroll through Twitter, have an opinion about everything. Right. <laughs> but what can you add to the conversation 
because you studied or read or put the work in? Do you have anything unique to say from history or from experience or from obscure paper that you can add? Because if you can do that, then you can have power in politics because you have something unique to add. If all you have to add is the emotion and talking a point of everyone else that also agrees with you, then your voice and contribution isn't unique enough in order to, to gather political power. I love that. That, and, and that idea, that principle, in my opinion, really applies to just life in general. I think like, you know, I think what that made me think of is just like content creation around, you know, things that, you know, an industry somebody's trying to get into. So say, you know, me, I've been a personal trainer for four years, but say I'm trying to build a bigger audience online, whether it's around personal training or podcasting, either right. one, right? I'm not going to grow, nor am I going to attract an audience, nor am I going to attract uh, a meaningful conversation if none of my ideas or, or thoughts or opinions are unique and are just repetitive things that people already know or have already been saying forever. Um and the way you have unique ideas that matter is exactly what you said, is like going deeper than just the surface level. You can go right. read a basic personal training book. You can go get a basic personal training certification. You can go get a basic real estate license. Yes. But somebody who is going to be very powerful in their world and really, you know, reap the benefits of a specific industry or uh, be looked at as an expert is the, is the individual, like you said, who who dives deeper than just the service level and really, you know, understands things and develops their own thoughts. Anyways, I really like no, that. It's, <laughs> no, it's really good. And I, I just want to um, take that point you just said about it applying to a bunch of different areas because I do that now. I've expanded and grown. I mentioned other lines of business. Um, because of what I learned in politics, um, I, I was able to have this public affairs and advocacy business. Um, but I turned that into a business, and now I have um, two other businesses that have grown out of that by applying the same by applying the same lesson. So um, I do podcasting, and I help uh, clients podcast. But it all came out of it all came out of seeing what the format did, and my clients needing content. So I help a client record a 45 minute to an hour long podcast and I turn that into 26 other pieces of content to fill up their social and so it's not because uh, I'm good at podcasting I'm, I'm I have a studio ne next door uh, and we have we have all of this equipment you being a podcast expert um, probably understand better than most that if I showed you my system and the boom mics and and the multi-view cameras and all of that, the audio and the visual isn't dramatically better than what we're doing now. The audio, most people probably couldn't even tell. You can, um, but most people probably couldn't, but there's a marginal difference. But the reason I do that is to capture that other content for the social and it makes the podcast format that I'm selling more saleable. It's not something that they can 
they even imagine that they could just recreate it, create something. They get nervous when they put the headsets on and the camera light goes on and the studio lighting comes up. You can see that physical reaction. I'm just saying I've taken those lessons and applied them. And now I have a, I have a six figure podcast business that grew out of just consuming content and hanging out with people on, on Twitter and learning from people who are podcasting professionals and just applying it to my clients. And so uh, you can take what you know and what you're good at and what you're doing. And if you learn from other people, applying it to different areas, you can, you should, you should be spending that, um, your talent in multiple different ways and make sure you're capturing all of the value. And we all have a way to learn how to do all that stuff. I'm, I learn every day. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and with you mentioning that, I kind of want you to dive a little bit deeper and explain the, the, the three separate businesses that you just touched on lightly right there. Um, kind of talk about, um, you know, what each of them do, maybe one by one. I'm sure I'll have some follow-up questions, but, uh, sure. but go sure. ahead. So the, the main business, um, and what, I, what most people know me for is high view strategies. And what we do is I come up with a strategy for how to support or oppose, uh, legislation or to promote a cause or an election, some big broad category. And then I come up included in that strategy. I have a social media campaign, a podcast campaign, a digital advertising strategy, um, and the various communication techniques associated with that, um, direct mail, mail, um, and all of that. And in that whole plan, including hiring lobbyists, I come up with entire plans for how to distribute that. And then I provide each of those services underneath that, depending on what the plan is. So the whole package, um, what I found in, so that's the, that's the PR and marketing business. I looked after my second year in business and I was just looking at what kinds of things was I having, what were some of the biggest, biggest expenses and I realized I was paying a lot for printing for my clients that had mail and direct mail and all this other stuff. And I said, well, if my clients are spending this much money on mail, maybe I could just buy a printer. Hmm. And, and I went shopping for a printer and your big commercial scale printer is, is several hundred thousand dollars. And I wow. said, well, instead of buying a printer, how about if I just bought a print business? <laughs> and I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, so I bought a print business, um, and that's a separate entity now. It doesn't just serve my clients; it serves the community and a variety of different other clients. Um, and it serves as a as a backdrop for um, for talent, for design, and for the printing, and for the customer sales solution and all of that, um, I can bring that to my existing clients and add their skills and services to my existing clients, but I can also serve the community with some of the digital stuff that my other business had. I can now add to a traditional print shop and marketing company. So there were some synergies there. And so that business is separate and up and running and 
and I managed that one um, through through business systems and software and a manager on site there. And then out of that um, or related to that is uh, ATS, uh, Asynchronous Technology Solutions. And what that is, is a tech procurement service for government aid or agency state, federal, state, local, and county sales. So tech companies want to sell their product to the government. They don't know how to do that. ATS helps them sell their goods and services to state government entities. And that just grew out of in my in my for some of my client business in Highview, I met uh, people who were I was successful with them and helping them in these government strategies over here, and they were taking some of the proceeds and investing in tech startups and and companies in the Silicon Valley. And so um, one of them asked me, and this this might be helpful to you or, or some of your listeners, but they asked me to um, help them sell to the state and I would earn a commission for that sale. And instead of doing that, we decided to to set up a business. And instead of charging them for that sale to the service, I get equity in those companies. And And so it's a way for me to gain access to the the tech community and that booming sector without having that expertise in myself. But instead of trading my expertise in government for a fee, I trade it for ex- equity in the tech space. I love that. And that, that, like you said, should be powerful for a lot of listeners in here. So you have power and expertise in some area. And if you trade it for money, that might be good, but you don't earn a multiple on that. Hmm. expertise you want equity you want equity not a fee listen repeat that one more time because that was that's a a nice one-liner you want equity not a fee you want equity not a fee repeat that to yourself ladies and gentlemen (laughs) no again and again and again and again and again (laughs) that you should add that ladies and gentlemen to your guys's affirmations in the morning because i know y'all be about that affirmation lifestyle when i get get tired i I got a little uh clip of of marsh marshawn lynch and (laughs) talking about running into a linebacker yep yep again and again (laughs) and and again and And i do that i say and if you keep doing that um you will learn i also think i know i when i was listening to myself and as we're talking i'm thinking about it um it's okay if your listeners are saying I didn't know this, like, mm. because I came from where I came from. It's not like I went to college and they taught me any of this. Right. I did not know. I was, I, in my, well, you paid the electricity bill. When the utility company shuts off your electricity, they put a little wire on the utility box that keeps the meter, meter from spinning. And that's how they shut off your electricity. Mm. we would cut the wire and you knew that you had about three days before they came up and they really meant it because they put the lock on that you couldn't just snip. And so you paid the bill when they snipped the wire and you kind of had three days to get your stuff together because you had to pay on the bill when they came in or you were off. That's what it meant. 
And for me, now this is after college. This is after having a good job. I thought I was doing something because I didn't have to wait for them to snip the wire. I paid when they sent a pink envelope. I paid the utility bill four times a year. Because the first time they sent it, that doesn't mean anything. The second time, that doesn't mean anything. The third time, it doesn't mean anything. When they really want their money, they send it in a pink envelope. I'd open the pink envelope, write the check, and pay the bill. My wife told me, no, we don't get pink bills. You got to pay the utility bill every month. Auto bill pay. Now, I've been in my 30s before... I knew that you paid the utility bill every month. <laughs> like I didn't know that. How how was I supposed to, where how was I supposed to know that? So so I'm just giving you I want your you and your listeners to understand what you're hearing about equity and ownership and assets and why buy a house and a business. I didn't know any of that. Until maybe mid late forties, I'm fifty two now, and so this equity and ownership journey is newer to me now. Now I've put in a lot of work since knowing that. But if you can imagine, you know, I told you where I came from. I told you that work in the legislature and right out of college. Um, but I got hired by this big utility to be a lobbyist and I had to go on a, uh, I had to learn how to golf and I had to go, I now you talk about had to learn how to golf. Well, I had to learn how to golf. You can't not. So I had to go and show up at a country club and I had no idea how I went and bought some golf clubs. I learned enough to golf. Still don't know how to check into a country club. I drive up. <laughs> I drive up, like, okay, this kind of looks like valet parking, okay, and the guy was trying to take my clubs. I'm, like, holding on to my clubs, right? <laughs> my clubs. And I remember, I remember this brother looking me in the eyes, older gentleman, and he's looking at me, and he says, sir, I got your clubs for you. And he's like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I got that. <laughs> And right here's how you go to check in and the clubs will be on your cart after you check in. He's like guiding me through the process. That must it. <laughs> so so I know how to do this. So but it's not natural knowing. Mm. So you're not deficient because you don't know stuff like your podcast, why I agree to be on, is to take information that our community needs and get it into your hands and your audience's hands sooner because if i'd known more i'd have done better (laughs) and if i'd known it sooner i'd have more today so um i share it not just on a podcast but but i look to invest in black business owners i reach out to people who i see are doing good things um oftentimes when i reach out somebody's doing something uh, and they think I want a piece of it. <laughs> like you trying to, you're trying to get no, no, I'm good. I want you, I want you to do more with it. I want you to grow. I'm not trying to take your thing. Uh, but I, that can be hard if you don't have a relationship. And I get it. So I'm not 
I understand that tendency to want to hold on to what you got. Um, but, but really we need to be about what your, what your show seems to be about, which is, is really giving and sharing and looking to work and, and help people. So I'm, I'm all about that. I love it. I love it. I heard, a. Uh... You know, everything you're saying right now, especially what you just said right there, kind of just remind me of a quote that I heard this morning. Um, and it was, you know, when you leave like this world and go wherever you go or wherever you believe you go after this, um, you know, everything that you did, you know, for yourself stays with you and everything you did for others stays with them. So when we think about impact that we leave like on earth, you know, when we leave and legacy and things like that. It's all based off of the contributions and the service we give back to our community because that's what we leave here. That's what people are going to remember is how we treated them, what we did for them, how we, you know, how we fed into them. So, you know, just a reminder for the audience, everything you do for you stays with you and leaves with you. Everything you do for others stays with them. And that's like that true impact. And it just made me think about, you know, think about that based off of what you just said. So if you help a lot of people, you have way more impact with the content you're pushing out on the show. You don't even know you get the stats on listeners and that sort of thing, but you don't know the impact of who heard your show, who took a little piece of something, who took a little piece of information and worked a little bit harder, got a little bit better test score that and got into college. And you don't really even have any way to even measure that at all. Yeah. But that impact and doing the right thing day after day, um, at the end of it, um, you're you're dead. At the end of it, you can't take it with you, and you meet your maker. Um, but that and that impact is likely to have far more ripples than than what you try and hold on to. It's what you give away. A hundred percent. Well, I have a few more final questions for you. I've really enjoyed this podcast and this this conversation, more importantly, which is just in a form of a podcast. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of uh, value that people can take away from this and, you know, also that I take away from it, which is one of the blessings of being able to interview so many dope people. So um, you spoke of being a father of seven. So, you know, being a father of seven, being a business owner, and plus, you know, prior to these businesses, having a busy career in politics how do you i don't know if this is the right word but how do you compartmentalize or you know order or place things and separate work from home is that a, like something you try to do or do you just try to you know live a cohesive life with the two of them all mixed together has that been a challenge can you kind of talk about that well i think of it um i have a i have a, a pretty well thought out my approach to it and i don't uh, tell anybody else they have to do that but this is how i do it and um, I, I look at it as, as I'm a spiritual being, I'm a, um, I have responsibilities to my job and my business, and I have responsibilities to my family and friends. And, and the, the truth is, each one of those requires my best, because if I fail in any of those areas, I will fail in all of them. There is no way I would ever say I'm a good uh, businessman, but my wife and children are suffering. Mm. And there's no way I'm a good dad and I can't provide for them in a, in my, because of my business or my spiritual life. And so for me, this is how I generally break it up. And I have this priority every day 
And then if I have to adjust or I'm not able to fulfill um, in that day, that's okay because I never get too far off track because I prioritize this every day. So for me, when I wake up in the morning, um, that's my spiritual time. That's the focus of how I'm going to begin the day. My kids are still asleep. My wife is still sleeping. That's when I've got my time. And that's what I devote to that. And that might be um, that might only, that might be an hour and that's, but during that time, that's what I'm focused on. That's what I, that's what's best for me and my family and my business, because I need to take care of that. And that needs to be taken care of. And then when I go to work, you'd be shocked. I think most people would be shocked, but with a busy wife and seven kids, um, my wife generally doesn't text and interact during the day. I'm focused on my work during my work time. Uh, and I'm generally not focused in thinking about my family, wife, and kids. But my desk is a mess. My computer inbox has its stuff. But at the end of the day, when I'm done working, as I bring on new clients, I explain my family dynamic and situation. Do I work late sometimes? Yeah. Do you, if you need to call me, call me. I will take that call, but I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> like, when I get home from, I start that mind shift when I'm driving home from work, I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my kids and the stuff and the challenges and my wife, but I'm, I'm thinking about the kids. When I walk in the door, it's kid time. They know that's the attention. That's who has my focus. When I walk through the door, my ritual is I joke, they, they've heard it their whole life. Where's my wife? <laughs> I walk in and it's kind of handoff. Like I give my wife a kiss. She gets the first greeting and then the kids give me a hug and then they'll scatter or they'll be with me or whatever. They'll be talking to me and now they're on me and, and they, I'm on them. Like that's the, the little routine that's going on there. Um, we try and eat dinner together as a family. We eat dinner together. Um, now the kids are older. They're doing homework. I'm reading a book, whatever. We're doing that kind of thing. And then um, that's up until maybe 8, 8.15. Then the youngest kids go. My wife generally takes care of getting the younger ones ready for bed. And, and we, we do our prayers, sing a song or whatever. The kids go to bed. Um, and she's had a little break from the kids that since I got home to bedtime, <laughs> she's had a little break from that. Um, but then, uh, then after the kids are in bed, that's now my wife is my focus. And so sometimes what that might mean by focus is we have a couple rules. Um, if my wife and I are in the same room, no phones, mm. not allowed, not allowed. Um, not and she doesn't have to ask me to put it down, or I don't have to ask her to put it down. If we're in the same room, the phone is a is a non-option. That means not only am I not looking at it, but she's not feeling like it's a competitive thing. Hmm. Or I'm not, it's a non-option. If we're in the same room, we're focused on each other. And and that um that has been helpful because um, the best thing I can give my kids is um, a healthy relationship with my wife. Um, and so 
So by giving her that attention, it's actually blessing the kids and everything else that's going on in the home. And it gives us that nightly connection, which prevents any distance from opening up and all of that. So uh, that's the ideal schedule. So if I have to get up early or I, I, I miss a day, that's it. I didn't fail. That happens. The next day is going to get the same, <laughs> the same priority so that I never stack up days of missing attention to anything. Every day is meant to give attention to everything that matters. So that's how I organize it. I love it. I love you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so can you talk to me about the what what we'll say hashtag own stuff mentality you know i've been following you on twitter for a few months um and i've seen you you know post a few tweets with the hashtag own stuff mentality on there so can you kind of talk to me about uh what that means to you and and what you mean by that and kind of share that with the audience yeah um i don't know if your audience if they don't know aisha sheldon uh, they need to. She is the real deal. She's got a unique position in that she she comes from the hood in Philadelphia. Um, she's done things the right way financially her entire life, and and she sticks to tried and true principles of wealth generation and creation. And. Um, and she teaches uh, the principles of asset ownership, income-producing assets. Um, and so I have found a network of people that I've learned from that amplify the same message that Aisha Sheldon has. And so I found Nick Huber is teaching this about owning uh, businesses that you can own starting with less than $100, and you can own a business in a matter of weeks that's producing $1,000, $2,000 a month. I found uh, Moses Kagan, who has these principles of real estate ownership and how you can generate equity and return safely in using real estate. Um, or Chris Powers that talks about private equity and maximizing your impact from all these investments. So in each stage, there's different um, ways and things you need to know. And so for me, that own stuff mentality are, is, a, is a thread of ownership through each phase of where you are in the process from, from I got to save up my first $100 to my 401k and everything is set. What do I do now? So the entire lifestyle. And then for me, that own stuff um, in the world we're in and, and, uh, and Aisha, um, and I couldn't steal her phrase, her phrase is own shit. And I don't, I'm not personally offended by the phrase. It doesn't bother me. Um, but my faith community, my church would not be down <laughs> with <Because>. me. <laughs> It would offend people that I don't need to offend, and I wouldn't want to offend or distance. So I can't. I just said I'm going to call it own stuff, and people can figure it out. But it also became a way because no one else is using it. Um, I have some automation built, so when I use that hashtag, 
I can capture the ideas and the principles so that it's not just a fleeting thought on Twitter. Yeah. I've got a system where, where it's automated when I tag that, it goes into a database and it begins to populate a, we- a website that I'm building, ownstuff.org, which will, will take these lessons and I'll be able to have a repository of everything that I've been taught to make it easier to share with a broader community. So that own stuff mentality is primarily focused on equity ownership and income producing assets, equity ownership and income producing assets. And by focusing on that at different economic levels, I think we can, um, I'm committed to working to increase black ownership of income producing assets. I love it. I love it. Russell, this has been fabulous. You know, it's always a teensy bit nerve wracking interviewing somebody new simply because as much as somebody might be providing value on Twitter or as interesting as they might be in their Instagram videos, you never know how well they're going to communicate when it comes to a podcast and you've killed it. You've dominated. I think you've uh, shared a lot of value and, and interesting insight for not only the audience, but for me. And uh, so really, man, I, I really appreciate you. And before we sign out of here to get today, I wanted to, you know, say and ask, it's your hypothetically last year on earth. You're 154 years old. You've lived as long as you've wanted to live. You've done everything you wanted to do. And your great grandkids are sitting at your feet and they ask you this question, which is the last thing you get to leave them with. And they ask, grandpa, great, great grandpa, what is one piece of advice on how to live a good life? What are you going to say? Uh, I'm going to say walk in obedience to Jesus Christ and all that he commanded. Never, it will, it'll, it will never fail you. I love it. I love it. Russell, thank you so much. Let the people know where they can find you across social media platforms, how they can support you and your companies moving forward. Um, the For your audience and for anyone, um, I think the the best thing you can do to support me is uh, to do what it takes for you to own income producing assets. I don't need anything. I'll, I'm happy to work for you. I'm happy to help you. Um, but our community desperately needs people who look like us, who care like us to own stuff. And you're not hurting the cause by owning stuff. To that end, if I can help you on that, you can contact me at russellowry10 on Twitter, um, or my web, my company website is hygiestrat.com, uh, and I'm happy to I'm happy to consult and help. It's my favorite part of my day. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, um, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you guys leave a five star review um, on Apple Podcast. Share with a friend, as you know that is the only way we can grow. Please tap in with Russell, you know, let him know if you enjoyed the episode. Um, And at the end of the day, just keep on listening, man. I I plan to bring more and more dope guests on. So keep enjoying life. Keep being the source of light for those that are in darkness and just keep being great. This is Kala Stutzer on the Kala Stutzer Show signing out. Salud.